God chose the lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Boom, five. God chose a lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five, eight. everybody my voice is worse than yesterday as you can tell but I'm stepping out in faith I'm not not doing this just because I don't have a voice <clears throat> but I'll tell you if my voice does get too bad I just can't talk so I'll have to shut it down so I'm gonna do my best pray for me pray that God would restore <clears throat> my voice because I have a lot to say, man. There's so much I want to share this morning. Um, but if I'm struggling to say it, I might have to save it for another time. So I'm going to drink water periodically. <clears throat> and do my best. So, try not to be distracted by my voice. It's going to crack every three seconds. Get over it. Build a bridge. Like I tell my kids... They don't understand the joke. Why do you tell us to build a bridge? Because I'm telling you to get over it. <clears throat> so yesterday, just to recap, we talked about the definition of prophecy. Um, talked about the delivery logistics. Um, talked about everything that I knew to talk about when it comes to the way God delivers messages and communicates His Word. So hopefully... That was clear. Um, if it wasn't, go talk to your mom and dad. They'll clarify. <clears throat> There's one thing I did not clarify, though. Okay? And I really want to get this out there. Give me one sec. As we transition to episode two, we're going to talk about the New Testament. Okay? And there's a common argument amongst cessationist brothers and sisters. Cessationist means that they believe um, certain gifts of the Spirit have ceased. They've stopped. Okay? And there's a common argument that goes like this. Well, <clears throat> those gifts were only in operation to validate the gospel when the apostles would preach it. So when they would go from town to town, when the church was in its early stages, when the foundation of the church was being laid by the apostles and prophets, that's when those gifts were in activity. So gifts like prophecy, gifts like tongues, gifts like healing, um, the, what they call the signs and wonder gifts, as if to make a distinction, I don't see that clear delineation in scripture, but either way, they say that now that the New Testament is finished, now that we have the finalized canon of scripture, 
We no longer need the gift of prophecy. And so God took that away when the canon of scripture was completed, when the New Testament was compiled and they established what books go into the New Testament. Now that we have the full revelation of the word of God, we no longer need the gift of prophecy and the role of prophets. So God removed that from the earth. That's how the argument goes. And so we'll address that when we get there. <clears throat> but for today, God restore my voice. I need help. Um, today's message outline is this, okay? We're going to answer the question, um, what is a prophet defined in scripture, biblically? Because I think that needs to be explained. Uh, when God speaks directly to someone apart from scripture without a mediator, does that make them a prophet? <clears throat> Third question, if someone has the gift of prophecy, does that make them a prophet? Fourth question, if someone does not have the gift of prophecy and they are not a prophet, can they still receive prophetic visions, prophetic dreams, prophetic words from God? And question number five, is a prophetic word different than the Holy Spirit speaking a word to people in the New Testament? Because we'll see this in Acts. We'll see the Holy Spirit speaks to people in the book of Acts, okay? <clears throat> Question number six, uh, God visits people in angelic visitations through messengers, angelic messengers that he sends, okay? <clears throat> the question becomes, what's the difference between a prophetic word and an angel delivering a message to a person? Because the question becomes, does it only qualify as a prophetic word if it came directly from God without a mediator, right? Is that one of the qualifications for a legitimate prophetic word is that it's between you and God, no mediator, no angel, no prophet, <clears throat> no apostle, just you and God. Does that make it a prophetic word? Is that a qualification? And then we'll address, does the completion of the New Testament canon remove the need for prophecy and prophets in the church? And then the last question is, if prophecy and prophets are still active, because some people believe that, <clears throat> I'm not going to show my hand yet. Does this mean we have an open canon of scripture that prophets can add to? Because that becomes a huge concern for cessationist brothers and sisters. Is they say, yeah, if there's prophets and if the gift of prophecy is still active, what you're saying is we have an open canon of scripture. And so now people can add to it and we don't have a finalized canon. We have an incomplete canon. <clears throat> Get that man some hot herbal tea, bro. I had everything this morning you can think of. Everything. Flew out a personal chiropractor. Flew out a personal massage therapist. Everything you can think of, okay? Nothing worked for my lungs. It is what it is. My larynx is shot. <clears throat> but before we jump into those things, there's one thing I didn't address in the last episode. Remember how I said... Um, when God speaks, is it always apparently clear that he's speaking to the receiver, the recipient of the message? Is it completely clear God is speaking or is it, are there sometimes where it's not clear and the prophet's not sure? We talked about Jeremiah. We talked about Daniel. We talked about <clears throat> these different characters, Peter in the new Testament. There's one I missed. Okay. And it's Paul on the road to Damascus when he's blinded, right? Paul's considered an apostle and a prophet, but he's before that, he's blinded on his way to Damascus 
to murder Christians, put them in prison, and he's blinded by this amazing light, shines all around him and his companions. He hears a voice, and his companions hear it, but they perceive it to be something freaky. They don't understand what's being said. And Paul says, he hears the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? He didn't perceive the voice, but he did understand there was authority behind the voice. So when God spoke, when the son spoke directly to Paul, no mediator, just Paul and Jesus. And Jesus speaks directly to Paul. Paul doesn't go, my savior, my God. He goes, who are you, Lord? It was not apparently clear. It was not obvious. So add that to the list that I gave you yesterday just to reinforce the idea that, yeah, when God speaks to a person, it's not obviously clear all the time. Because that's a misconception when it comes to prophecy, is that if God speaks, he'll make himself clearly known and there'll be no question about it. That's not biblical. God makes himself known to the degree he wants to. And he allows the person who he's talking to, to respond, partner with him, kind of close in the gap and seek to know that voice better. So <clears throat> here's the other thing that I did not establish yesterday as we jump into prophets in the New Testament. Did God fail if the word was given and it didn't produce its intended goal? So when God gives a vision, a prophetic word, a dream, um, that he knows will fall short or not accomplish its intended purpose, right? Maybe it's, it's to call someone to repentance. Maybe it's to move someone forward. Maybe it's like Jonah, go to Nineveh. Instead, he goes the other way. The question becomes, is that a waste? Is that a waste? Because some will say, look, God won't speak without purpose. I agree. I agree. God will never speak without purpose, but does, will God still speak to a person, give them the chance to accomplish the intended purpose, knowing they will not, and he still speaks? Will he do that? I think Jeremiah 7, 27 is the best place to go to. <clears throat> this is what God says to Jeremiah, bro. He essentially says, I'm going to send you to preach and prophesy. No one's going to listen. Jeremiah 7, 27, he says, So you shall speak all these words to them. They will not listen to you. Why does God send Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah is a sign of judgment against the people, but also a call to repentance. So either they will respond and repent and awesome, or they'll remain hard-hearted and Jeremiah will be a, a word of judgment against them. So God sends Jeremiah knowing no one's going to listen. And yet, that's what God desires. Is that the nation would listen and repent and turn back to him. So there's a purpose behind the word. That's not the only purpose. That's one dimension of it, right? But that's one of the purposes behind sending Jeremiah. That purpose isn't fulfilled, right? That purpose isn't fulfilled. So you go, did God waste? Did he fail? No, he gave a chance. He says, you shall call to them. They will not answer you. <clears throat> they won't answer them. So when God presents a word, you and I, from our 
one-dimensional perspective when we see things. We go, oh, there's one purpose behind it. God has a plethora of purposes behind speaking. He does. He really does. Sometimes when he speaks, it's to call to repentance. Sometimes when he speaks, it's to comfort and encourage. Sometimes when he speaks, it's to reassure you in a decision that you've made. Look at the prophets of old. Sometimes when he speaks, it's declaring the future and what will happen if they don't turn, right? But if they do turn, they can avoid that future scenario, right? So when God speaks to say, <clears throat> to say that, you know, um, uh, God fails if the intended ideal purpose is not achieved, God failed, that's not true. The, this becomes a question of really Calvinism and it, whether you believe in the free will. But <clears throat> when God shares, from a Calvinist perspective, I love you brothers and sisters, but when you, what you believe, okay, is that there's some who God designs for hell and some God designs for heaven. And you read Romans 9 through 11 like that. Based on that theology, Let's say I'm preaching the gospel to someone whom God has destined to hell and he designed them for hell. And I'm preaching the gospel, right? First or second, Timothy tells me God desires all people to be saved. All people to be saved. So God's saying that on one side of his mouth, but on the other, as a Calvinist, you're saying, no, God doesn't really desire or want them to be saved. He's destined them for hell. He's designed them for hell. And they have no chance of avoiding that destined reality. <clears throat> so... Okay, so here's what happens. When we say that, that they're destined to hell and I'm preaching the gospel desiring for them to be saved, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. But you're saying, no, God actually intends for them not to be saved. So which is it? Which is it? Does he desire for them to be saved or not? My perspective, when I read the scriptures, there is absolutely free will. And so I can tell who's a Calvinist in the chat just by the statements you're making. And again, you can be a brother or sister of mine. We can disagree. I used to be Calvinist. <clears throat> I understand five-point theology. I listened to Piper and Spurgeon and, and, and R.C. Sproul. Okay, trust me. I spent years in, at, at their, <clears throat> on their YouTube channels. So I, I'm not new to this. But from my perspective, okay, I don't want to get too down this rabbit hole. But when God presents the gospel, he is legitimately inviting someone into a relationship. It's a legitimate invitation, okay? So when God sends Jeremiah to declare what's going to happen if the people don't repent, there's a twofold thing happening. There's judgment against them should they not turn, but there's also a legitimate opportunity for them to repent. So to say that Jeremiah was only sent to declare their impending doom and no chance to turn, that's not true. That's not true. Jeremiah is sent to call them to repentance. So if you say, no, God really sent Jeremiah to just declare judgment and they had no chance to repent, then you, you strip his prophecies of their real inviting gracious power to come and turn back to God. So the point is, <clears throat> and you shall say to them, uh, God says to Jeremiah, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God. He did not accept discipline. And they, not, they did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It's cut off from their lips. Okay, so the question becomes, will God ever give a prophetic word with a purpose that won't be fulfilled because of the person, because of the circumstances, because the person doesn't obey and act in faith? And the answer becomes, yeah. 
And you're like, I'm not convinced. Well, that's not a waste. It's not. This is a legitimate opportunity. God is inviting people to partner with him, okay? To partner with him in his plan of redemption. Not to say we add to Christ, but to say we partner with him as ambassadors, bringing reconciliation and the message of the gospel. We're partnering. God's inviting, okay? So Isaiah 55 verse 10, it says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they don't return there but water the earth, like when rain and snow come, they will at least water the ground they fall on, making it for, uh, bring forth uh, and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Here's what God says. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall not return void. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So to say that God never speaks without purpose is true. To say that God's purpose behind, there's always a purpose that's accomplished, that's true. But the ideal, when we declare the gospel, uh, God's desire is that people would be saved, okay? When they don't respond in faith and they disobey, that's not a failure on the part of God. That's a failure to respond on the part of the person. But the word that came as an invitation now speaks their judgment against them should they stay in rebellion, same as Jeremiah. Same as Jeremiah, okay? Go to Isaiah chapter six. This is what Isaiah says, not just about the common, uh, not just about the people of Israel during his time, but about what the generation of Jews in Jesus' time will be like. He said, here I am, send me. And he said, go say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes, their ears heavy. When's the last time you had heavy ears? I don't know what that feels like. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant. So Isaiah comes to declare, again, message of repentance, message of judgment if they don't repent. What's coming their way should they persist in rebellion and unbelief and idolatry. And, <clears throat> and sexual immorality and all this stuff. Isaiah comes to declare what will happen. Okay, but God tells him, just so you know, your words will actually dull their hearts and eyes even more. They're not going to respond. They're going to see, but they won't perceive. They're going to hear, but they won't understand. Right? This is exactly what Jesus says in the parable of the sower when he's explaining it to the disciples. So the answer becomes, does God... Is it a waste for God to spend his word or his message on someone who won't respond? It's not a waste. It's a legitimate invitation. I used to print out flyers as a youth pastor and send them out to every kid I knew in the high school, just just pumping them out, putting them on cars. That was not a waste, right? Should they crumple it up and throw it in the trash? That was a legitimate invitation. They're the ones that decided not to attend the event that I was hosting. But it wasn't a waste. I'm glad. I'm still glad that I got it in their hands. There's probably a secondary purpose behind it. Maybe they became aware of the church now. Maybe God used that to kind of remind them of the faith they had as a kid. Right? So when we talk about how God has a purpose behind his words, I I will never disagree with that. And I'll never say God fails. There's always a purpose that's intended. But there's almost like layers of purpose. There's almost like layers of intent. Like, I want to repent. Should they not? This is judgment. Should they not? This will come to pass. 
Matthew chapter 13 speaks of the parable of the sower. Jesus is explaining to the disciples why he speaks in parables. He goes, this is why I speak to them in parables, seeing they don't see. Like they're right in front of me and they don't even understand who it is that's in front of them. Hearing they don't hear. They're hearing the word of God from the word of God himself emanating from the Father and they still don't hear. Nor do they understand. There's lack of understanding. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Is fulfilled. You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. Now, of course, God was sovereignly over um, in, in the time of Jesus, the generation of Jews that did not see, that did not hear, that did not understand. God was sovereignly over that in order to actually bring his son to the cross through their rebellion and unbelief. God worked with that. God used it. God brought a temporary hardening over Israel until the atonement was finished, until Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Okay, that national hardening. But then in Acts, in the New Testament, we see lots of Jewish people, even Pharisees and religious leaders, coming to the gospel, coming to believe in the Son and believe in who He is. So this was a temporary seasonal hardening that accomplished a purpose. The point is, Jesus still declared. Jesus still proclaimed to crowds that he knew would not understand, see, or hear. This people's heart has grown dull. From a Calvinist perspective, and I hate to get all like uh, soteriological with this, that means salvation, but the point is as a Calvinist, you say God made their heart dull. No, their heart has grown dull like Pharaoh who hardened his heart over and over and God responds to that after enough time and it's grown dull, and seasonally God takes Israel and kind of positions them in that hardness of heart to bring the Messiah to the cross, accomplish our salvation, and then he can lift that as the apostles are sent out to preach. With the, This people's heart has grown dull, their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. So guess what? God would heal them if they turned. The problem is, that's not the purpose for which Jesus came. He came, right, to actually bring division between father and mother household, to actually accomplish our salvation by being condemned to the cross. So if he just comes to the Jewish people, if he just comes to them and they turn, that leaves the rest of us screwed. So what Jesus does is he comes during that time in human history where Israel and Rome are positioned strategically, they're spiritually where they need to be, and Jesus is condemned to the cross not so that Israel would turn and be healed, right, only, but also so they would condemn Christ to the cross and through that receive salvation for them and the Gentiles. So God's intent, he loves to heal, he loves to save, but for the purpose for which Jesus comes, he brings a word that actually further solidifies the hardness of Israel's heart temporarily because they're not willing to listen, not willing to turn, Okay, so I got to get that off my chest. Now we can talk about what is a prophet. And we'll get to the New Testament. Okay, what is a prophet defined in scripture? And here's how I would summarize it. Okay, for those that are wondering. I don't think we ever take time to really like define these terms and come up with a statement that accurately represents what these terms are. Okay, what is a prophet defined in scripture? The bare bones of that is one who declares the truth of God by the Spirit of God. 
So a chosen vessel set apart by God to understand the mysteries of God's world, God's plan of redemption, for the purpose of revealing what is hidden to those he's called to as a prophet. So prophets are mouthpieces of God with divine insight and a heavy responsibility. In, the, in a new covenant sense, it seems as though a prophet is one who has the gift of prophecy, which we'll address, okay? We'll address that. But no matter what, if we're going to define prophet according to the actual definition of prophecy, remember, prophecy is revelatory in nature. Prophecy is uncovering what wasn't once fully known or understood, if at all. So a prophet will play a role in that revelatory purpose of God to uncover what is unseen, what is unknown, what is going to happen, okay? And a prophet declares a word with a purpose, right? So a prophet is sent as a mouthpiece of God, chosen, set apart, to go and declare something to a specific audience. It's a word with a purpose that they carry. Maybe they're going to ignite faith. Maybe the prophet is sent to cause repentance or to confirm the steps of the king. Maybe the prophet is sent to, to move God's plan of redemption forward or to exalt the son. Maybe a prophet is sent to warn people to turn or to confirm a decision or establish steps. But, okay, when I read scripture, uh, there are some who would say, um, there's a prophecy that Jeremiah gives. Um, I forget who it's about, but <clears throat> essentially he says the king will die. The king ends up not dying. I can't think of the passage right now. You'll have to go and research it. But that paired with um, what we talked about yesterday, how a prophet biblically can receive the right word, hear the right thing, okay, and still come to a wrong conclusion and interpretation like that's true, that's biblically true. We looked at the prophets in the New Testament and the Old to confirm that. That their prophet means, doesn't mean 100% success or discernment or accuracy. We think of prophet as like never gets it wrong, like a true prophet of God never fails, never makes a mistake. It's not true. God had to correct quite a few prophets. <clears throat> and in the New Testament, we see along with the Old Testament that there are prophets, and I'm not going to re-explain this, go watch the first video, that prophets can hear the right thing, see the right vision, right? And come to the wrong conclusion or interpretation about that word still. So a prophet is not someone who 100% success rate, 100% discernment rate. Um, that, that doesn't seem to be uh, you know, validated by scripture, okay? So we have to kind of remove that idea out of our head that when God chooses a vessel, when God chooses a prophet, he has a 100% success rate. He always recognizes God's voice. He always discerns what God is saying. He always knows exactly what to do. That, that, that's not biblically true or historically. Um, but let's go here, okay? Now that we know what a prophet is, it's very simple. Here's what I want to ask, because this plays into the question I know you guys are really wanting me to get to it. Like, just tell us, do you believe that prophecy and the role of prophet is still active with the completion of the New Testament? We'll get there. Let's take baby steps by asking this question. Ready? When God speaks directly to someone apart from scripture, I'm not saying it violates scripture. I'm not saying it contradicts scripture. I'm saying God is not speaking to them through the written word of God. He's speaking to them some other way to a prophet like Abraham, like uh, Elijah, like when God speaks directly to someone apart from scripture, 
without a mediator, does that make them a prophet? We really never think through these things. If the answer is no, watch. If the answer is no, this means that someone who is not a prophet and does not have the gift of prophecy per se can receive prophetic insight through dreams, visions, or um, a prophetic word by the Spirit, even if they don't have the gift of prophecy or are prophets. So for those that are, you know, confused as to what I'm getting at, here's what I'm getting at. I'm going to show you a bunch of examples just to load you up with absolute evidence that yes, there are people who are not prophets, don't have the gift of prophecy, who have prophetic visions, prophetic dreams, prophetic words by the Spirit. <clears throat> okay? So, let's start with Acts chapter 15. Um, that's not the right verse. Acts 21. I think this is the right one. Okay? This is just a small, we'll start small, okay? Acts chapter 21. I probably should have started with the best evidence first. Uh, Acts chapter 21. This is what Luke recounts, okay? On the next day we departed, came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip. Remember Philip? Um, he's sent from Jerusalem, goes to Samaria, brings revival there. Well, he's an evangelist. He was one of the seven, like Kung Fu Panda. And he stayed with them. I forget what, the, what they're called in Kung Fu Panda. Tigris, Mantis, what are they called? <clears throat> Not the Fantastic Four. It's completely different. But either way, um, they're staying at Philip's house, the evangelist. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, they're not called prophets or prophetesses. They're just called uh, unmarried daughters of Philip that end up prophesying. Now, Luke could have clarified and said, well, they were prophetesses. And that would have just answered the question you and I both have, which is, hey, um, does this make them prophetesses? Can you clarify? Well, all we know is that they prophesy. I don't think that necessarily guarantees and definitively means that they're absolutely prophetesses. But, okay, I think Luke chapter 2 would be also a good place to go. <clears throat> Luke 2.22, watch this. We're going to come across Simeon. And we're going to come across Anna, okay? When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, right? Mary and Joseph bring Jesus according to the custom of Moses, the traditional um, ceremony laws and washings. They bring him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. He's the first to open the womb. As it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be holy. And they bring a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem. He's just a man. He's not a prophet. He's not called a prophet. Whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous. This man was devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Seems like a very personal word. That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Right? So Simeon, he's just called a man by Luke, not a prophet necessarily. He's a, he's a man who's righteous and devout. 
he gets a word from the Holy Spirit. Was that by another prophet? Was that a personal word directly from God without a mediator? We don't know. It just says revealed by the Holy Spirit. That he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the Spirit in the temple uh, <clears throat> when the parents brought in the Lord Jesus uh, to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God. Okay, Scroll down and we come across someone named Anna. There's a prophetess named Anna. And we'll talk about <clears throat> Anna a little bit. Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, he's just a priest. That's all he is. He's the father of John the Baptist. He just goes and does his, his duties in his time, and he, he actually encounters uh, a direct messenger from God. And we can talk about that, but let me do this, okay? I should have started with this. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> here's a list of people who are not prophets, who don't have the gift of prophecy, that God directly speaks to without a mediator or without a mouthpiece, okay? I think I messed up this area of the notes, so just Cain, Hagar, Isaac, Jacob, which technically you could refer to Isaac and Jacob as prophets, Joseph as well, Aaron and Miriam, uh, Israel, the entire nation, God speaks directly to them. They actually hear the voice when he comes down on Mount Sinai and they go, oh, Moses, you go up, you talk to him. Uh, Gideon, Samson's parents, Solomon, the list goes on and on. Um, so instead of going to Zechariah, because here's what will happen. <clears throat> he ends up prophesying here. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and his, where is it? He can speak again because he was temporarily muted. God muted his microphone because he didn't believe that John, John, Johnny B was going to be born to him. So God kind of mutes Zechariah's mic. And now <clears throat> he says, his name will be John, and he can speak again. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant, in the servant David. He'll go on and on and on. I don't have to read the whole prophecy. The point is, Luke recounts that Zechariah prophesies, and Zechariah is not a prophet. He's a priest. Zechariah is just an ordinary um, servant in the, in the temple who's a part of the priesthood. Uh, not the Aaronic priesthood, but the Levitical one. And he, he's just the father of Johnny B. And he ends up being filled with the Spirit and prophesying. He's not a prophet, but he's prophesying. It's like Simeon received a prophetic word. Uh, seemingly directly from God. Didn't make, didn't make him a prophet. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6, we actually see Saul, um, before he's declared king, he ends up prophesying with a group of prophets. He ends up prophesying with a group of prophets. Does that mean Saul is a prophet? I don't think so. But they say he's numbered among the prophets. Look at him prophesying. <clears throat> verse 10 and 11, he ends up prophesying among them, just like Samuel had said he would. And when they all knew him, they saw he prophesied with the prophets. They said, whoa. What has come over the son of Kish? Is he among the prophets too? Is he among the prophets too? 1 Samuel 19, we have some other people prophesying. So this is less about receiving a word and more about giving a prophetic word as you're, as you're used to seeing a prophet do, not an ordinary individual, okay? 1 Samuel 19, uh, Saul actually sends uh, messengers, um, Saul sends messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets 
prophesying, Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So you have random messengers sent by Saul to capture David. Spirit of God comes upon them and they start prophesying. Does that make them prophets? Were they prophets prior and are they now prophets? Verse 24 is Saul, undignified man, humiliating. He strips off his clothes, ends up going to David himself, pulls a Thanos, I'll do this myself. And he ends up stripping off his clothes like you do on a weekend. And he too prophesied before Samuel. And he lay naked all that day. Just to be clear, this isn't undergarments. This seems, uh, it could be undergarments that are at least covering him. But I think the way the narrative goes, he's being humiliated and stripped like Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> he lays naked all day and all night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. So there are those who prophesy that are not prophets. There are those who receive prophetic words that are not prophets. Genesis chapter 20, because remember, the qualifications we're working with is, hey, there can't be a mediator if they're going to receive a prophetic word, um, and it has to be directly from God, okay? This happens with Abimelech in Genesis 20. Abraham goes um, toward the Negev. He, he sojourns in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, she's my sister. Abimelech, king of Gerar. Gerar. He took Sarah. But God comes to Abimelech directly. This is a personal direct encounter with God in a dream by night. And he says to him, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he goes, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Abimelech seems to recognize the authority of this voice that it's actually at least a deity, right? At least divinity. We don't know if he knows this is the God of the heavens. But either way, God comes directly to Abimelech. Does that make Abimelech a prophet? I don't think so. God also comes to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 through 32, directly in a dream. No mediator, just coming directly to Nebuchadnezzar. And you're going, well, a dream isn't. Oh, hold on, watch. Daniel chapter 4. <clears throat> watch what happens. This isn't the dream part. King, ne King Nebi's up there being like, look how, look how awesome I am. I'm the man. Isn't this great Babylon which I built by my mighty power? A royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Look how awesome I am. He's obsessed with himself. He's prideful. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. This is a voice from heaven. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they'll go on to say, until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Immediately it was fulfilled. So you can say, well, that could be an angelic being. That could be someone else, uh, like, like maybe maybe uh, Christophany, a pre-incarnate Jesus. Either way, okay, this seems to be um, a word that carries divine authority that is from God uh, directly to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think that makes him a prophet. Or Caiaphas in John chapter 11 he unknowingly prophesies. It's exactly what John records. Caiaphas, who's the high priest, he says, you know nothing at all when they're debating about Jesus. Do we kill him? Do we arrest him? Do we let him do his thing? You don't understand. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. It doesn't say being a prophet. It doesn't say Caiaphas is a prophet and a mouthpiece of God. He says he's the high priest. Therefore, he prophesies that Jesus would die for the nation. 
and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So guess what? He didn't say this of his own accord. The Spirit of God prophesying through Caiaphas gives a prophetic word. Caiaphas seems to unknow it, like be a, he's not even aware of it. He's not aware of the full scope of what's being said and the prophetic insight that he's communicating. It seems to be something that is not on his grid. He's just saying, yeah, we should kill him. But it's prophetically declaring what needs to happen to Christ. Does that make Caiaphas a prophet? No. But I also would say, isn't it interesting that God's working with seemingly someone who is in opposition to God and his plan. God gives a prophetic word through him. God allows, prophesies through a man that is against his son and against the gospel and his kingdom. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? So this just this blows the categories off of these, these conditions we place on prophecy and prophets. Does it make Caiaphas a prophet? I don't think so, just because he prophesied. Genesis 31, 24, God comes to Laban. Remember Laban? Laban's Jacob's, uh, well, his father-in-law, he's, he's a jerk, but Jacob's also kind of a twisted dude, so he's getting what's coming to him. God comes to Laban in a dream. Laban's pursuing Jacob, chasing him, because he thinks that they stole his, his household gods, right? And Laban's pretty mad, he's pissed. God comes to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream. God comes to him and says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So God directly intervenes, stops Laban from doing what he would. Does that make Laban a prophet? Because he received a prophetic word in a dream by night directly from God without a mediator. And I would say, I don't think so. I don't think so. So the question when God speaks directly to someone, like apart from scripture, without a mediator, does that make them a prophet? The answer is no. The answer is no. There's a lot of examples <clears throat> that I've given. Lots of examples. So listen, the reason I bring this stuff up is because this is stuff that people don't ever really think about when they have these debates around prophecy, okay? And we're making our way to the New Testament argument. <clears throat> um, a question we should ask is, look, if someone has the gift of prophecy, like the actual gift, not just like a one-time encounter in a prophetic dream or a prophetic word by the Spirit, <clears throat> but if someone has the actual gift of prophecy, which we'll talk about later, does that make them a prophet? The short answer is, I believe so, yeah. But I think we don't need to worry so much about labels and office as much as we do about just doing what we're called to with what we've been given. So, if God speaks directly to me apart from Scripture, um, like the prophets, like everyone I've listed, Nebuchadnezzar, Abimelech, um, Saul and the companions, they're prophesying. If I prophesy, does that, does that make me a prophet? The answer is, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Um, so, if I don't have the gift of prophecy, can I receive prophetic visions and prophetic words Based on the examples above that I've shown you, it seems so, yeah. It just, just because someone's like, oh man, I wasn't given the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, or, or I'm not a prophet, that doesn't mean you can't receive prophetic insight in dreams or visions, or <clears throat> just a prophetic word by the Spirit of God inside of you. I don't think that eliminates that possibility. It just means it probably won't be as frequent as it will be for some. And that doesn't put you at a disadvantage. That means you play a different role than they do in the body. 
And so prophet doesn't mean someone who, who hears from God um, only, right? Because we hear from God all the time in his word. But we're talking about specifically hearing from God apart from scripture without a mediator, those two qualifications. Um, so, uh, you know, God speaks to all people in various ways through conscience, through creation, through the prophets, through scripture, through his son, you know, all those different means. So I would say someone who doesn't have the gift of prophecy can still receive prophetic words, visions, and dreams. Someone who does have the gift of prophecy is just more likely to experience those, have those experiences in, in higher frequency, okay? So, as we talk about does the New Testament canon completion mean no more prophecy, here's one of the questions that never comes up for me. I've never heard this before. Is a prophetic word different than the Holy Spirit speaking a word directly to someone. Like when the Spirit of God directly speaks to a person, which is what we see in the book of Acts, Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 13, Acts 20, Acts 21, when we see the Spirit of God directly speaking to a believer, is that different than a prophetic word? Um, and if it's the same, if it's the same thing, and you're going, no, there's, there's no difference, okay, then that means the Spirit speaking to us directly is prophecy. And when we speak by the Spirit, technically, in a biblical sense, we are prophesying. When the Spirit of God is leading our, our, our words, when they're rooted in Scripture, exalting the Son, magnifying God, advancing the kingdom, promoting faith in people, right? When I, when I speak with, in a way that's led by the Spirit, consistent with God's character and word, technically, prophecy is happening. Prophesying is happening. Because we're speaking forth from God. So Acts chapter 10 verse 19. These are some examples. Okay. Because. When people say that the gift of prophecy has ceased. It's been taken away. Or at least for the season of human history. And the, the, the role of prophet is gone as well. You inevitably have to say. That the spirit of God does not speak. To individuals anymore. However you qualify that whether that's with convictions, whether that's with promptings, whether that's with confirmations, whether that's with comforting, whatever that is, okay? <clears throat> um, Josh says, Jason, can you go into the meaning of the angel saying Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? At some point in the series, if you didn't already, I missed the start of this one. Absolutely, yeah. I'll probably get to that in um, uh, tomorrow's or Thursday's. So thank you for, I gotta write that down real quick. Um, before I forget, give me one sec, because I don't want to forget that. It's Revelation something, something. Done. I noted it down. Thanks, Josh. <clears throat> I appreciate that. So, okay, the question becomes, if, you know, the, the gift of prophecy, role of prophet is gone, does that mean that the Spirit of God doesn't talk to people anymore? cessationist brothers and sisters might say, well, no, we're not saying that. Like, there's still the comforting, the, the encouraging words of the Spirit, the promptings, maybe the convictions. I'll say, isn't that a form of the Spirit guiding and, and speaking to us? Uh, like, what do you qualify as speaking? Is it a direct voice from heaven? Is it a clear, like, word for word, I hear a voice? What do you qualify as the Spirit of God speaking? Um, that also has to be understood. Acts 10, 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, right, he's given a vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. So this is not Peter 
sitting with a prophet and the prophet's like, hey man, the spirit wants to tell you that there's three men looking for you. This is Peter receiving a vision on the rooftop about essentially the Gentiles receiving the gospel. And the spirit says to him, after the third time, he's, he hears the vision or sees it, and he's like, I don't know what's happening. The spirit goes, that's all right. Three men are looking for you. Well, how did that word come? It didn't come by a prophet. So we can't say every time in Acts, the spirit speaking is just a prophet coming and talking by the spirit. Because right here, there's no one around Peter. It's the spirit of God directly talking to Peter. How did that happen? How did he qualify that? How did he hear that? What did that sound like? Okay, so does the Spirit of God talk to people? He does. He does. So, if that's the case, that is going to be a part of or under the umbrella of prophecy. That becomes one of the ways now that God communicates prophetically to people. A prophetic word, visions, dreams, by the Spirit, which maybe you would say that's the same as a word. Okay, that's fine. Uh, go down to chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, same thing. He's recounting what happened. Paul, uh, Peter's re relaying what happened to him in uh, Caesarea, I think, is where he was. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Making no distinction. So guess what? Peter's even letting the people know, the apostles, the Spirit of God talked directly to me. Guess what? If prophecy is done, and if the role of prophet is ceased, that doesn't happen anymore either because that's a prophetic word. And if you say, no, that happens, but prof the prophetic has been taken away, you have an inconsistency in your theology. Go down to verse 28. One of them, Agabus, a prophet, comes. Watch. In these days, prophets would come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay? One of them named Agabus stood up, and foretold by the Spirit, there's going to be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, hey, let's send relief. Either way, look, he foretells by the Spirit. So this is not necessarily just Agabus is talking by the Spirit. This seems to be that the revelation comes by the Spirit and then it's relayed by the Spirit through Agabus. In other words, we think of prophecy as this mindless thing where we're taken over and we're not sure what's happening and we're just speaking. Men were carried along, according to 1 Peter. No prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. But that doesn't mean the person is not consciously aware or thinking through what's being said or, or even in control. This just means that the revelation comes by the Spirit and the delivery comes by the Spirit through the person as well, but not to the neglect of the person's personality or background or giftings or unique character traits. So Agabus stands up, foretells by the Spirit. That also has to, uh, you know, imply that the revelation came by the Spirit too. It's not like the Spirit, it's not like uh, in that moment Agabus is like, there's going to be a famine. It's the, there's a revelation. There's a, there's a gap between the actual delivery and the revelation. And it's not explicitly clear here, okay, but I'll show you as we move on that I think our modern understanding of prophecy and this mindless being taken over, um, it's just not a biblical view. Um, there are times where people will say things, but that doesn't mean they shut down and they're like taken over by the ghost of the Holy Spirit, you know. 
The Spirit of God fills us, works with us, partners with us, speaks through us as vessels, um, but that's not to the neglect of our personality and individuality, you might say, not in a negative sense. <clears throat> Watch this, Acts chapter 13, the Spirit of God actually says um, to a congregation, to a congregation. Now, they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, Lucius. Here are the prophets and teachers, okay? Um, a lifelong friend, uh, Manaean and Saul. You got five prophets and teachers. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. I used to read that as the word coming to Barnabas or coming to Saul or both of them. But it's saying to which I've called them as if to be talking about them, not to them. So whatever the word is, the Holy Spirit is speaking to the congregation. Now you might say, well, this comes by the prophet because he just noted, by the way, there are prophets and teachers in Antioch. And then the Spirit of God says, presumably through the prophets, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. I'm in, I have no reason to disagree with that. No reason at all. Um, it doesn't explicitly say that this word came by the mouth of a prophet, or it was a prophetic word in that, in that sense. It just says the Spirit said. This can include a prophetic vessel, this can include a prophet speaking, for sure. And I think it's most consistent with the context to say that one of the prophets or all the prophets here among the five had that same confirming word in Revelation. Maybe that's how it worked. I would say that's most consistent with the context. But the point is, the Spirit of God speaks to a, to a group of people. And so if we're going to say that the New Testament canon completion has ended... You, you cut off the speaking of the Spirit to both the individual and groups. You, you sever that, okay? <clears throat> and I know people are okay with that because they've never had an, a, like, a legitimate experience prophetically. That's fine. Um, uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul says he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And the Spirit testifies to him that in every city, afflictions, imprisonment awaits. So the question becomes, how do you qualify the Holy Spirit testifying to you? Is this personal conviction? Is this prophetically confirmed by other believers that you trust? Is this something that keeps popping up among trusted prophets? Not trusted prophets, but remove air quotes. Among trusted prophets in the early church. How does this work? That the Holy Spirit is testifying to all. Is this both personal conviction as well as external prophetic words from prophets? I, I could be a mixture of both. The point is that the Spirit of God is making it abundantly clear to Paul without him not being sure. Oh, no, no. It's abundantly clear that there's imprisonment and afflictions waiting for him, and the Spirit testifies to that. So the Spirit of God is quite active in the book of Acts, very much talking to people. Um, when Paul is visiting some disciples, uh, we'd come to come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre. Uh, having sought out some disciples at Tyre, uh, we stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, the disciples of Tyre were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. So the Spirit is active there, prophetically letting and informing the people there of what Paul is about to go into. 
And of course, it seems as though that they take that and go, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But guess what? That's not necessarily what the Spirit says. The Spirit just seems to be indicating what's waiting for Paul and the prophets, the people who receive a prophetic word, come to their own conclusion. Well, then, you know, you probably shouldn't go, Paul. It's not what the Spirit said, though. So another question that we never get asked is, is there a difference, okay? Is there a difference between a prophetic word and an angel delivering a message to a person? Meaning, is a prophetic word only truly a prophet? Like, if I'm a prophet and I receive a prophetic word from God, is one of the qualifications for a prophetic word that it involves no mediator? Like, if I'm a prophet and another prophet comes and tells me something, right? And this is what God says. Is that still a prophetic word technically because it came by way of a mediator? Well, maybe to the person who received it, but not for me. Some would say that, okay? But the point is, this becomes a part of the bigger question of whether or not the gift of prophecy is still active. If prophetic words include angelic visitations and messages from the Holy Spirit, then here's the conclusion. If prophets and prophecy have ceased, then God no longer visits people in angelic visions or speaks by His Spirit the way we see in Acts. That also has ceased because that falls under the umbrella of prophetic words, prophetic visions, when God sends an angelic visitation to a person. So if these things still happen though, and we would say, yeah, I do believe God can still visit people in angelic visitations or or give words by His Spirit, like prompt us, convict us, encourage us, comfort us, give us a, a sense of confirmation. Why would we still think that prophecy and prophets have ceased? They all fall under the same category of prophetic utterance and prophecy. In other words, God speaks not only through visions, dreams, and direct words, but explicitly by His Spirit and angelic visitations too. All the book of Acts, all over the place, man, God is speaking in all these different ways. So all these forms, all of this forms the broad understanding of what prophetic utterance or prophecy is in scripture. Okay? So I'll tell you this. Scripture says nothing explicitly or clearly about any of these communication methods stopping with the establishment of the New Testament canon. The angel of the Lord visits people quite a bit in the in the New Testament and the Old Testament. God speaks through angels often in the New Testament to Paul, to Cornelius, to Ananias, to Mary, to Zechariah, to Peter. Are these technically prophetic words? When an angel appears to a person or the Holy Spirit speaks and acts, does this mean those people have the gift of prophecy? I don't believe so. I think the gift of prophecy refers uh, to the frequency of prophetic words, not the ability to turn prophecy on or off. There's a misconception in the church which says, well, when you have the gift of prophecy, you can just switch it on and off. You can toggle between supernatural spiritual me and normal me. And I can, I'm talking on behalf of God and normal me. That doesn't seem to be how prophecy works. It's still depending on God, seeking for God, pursuing God, relying on Him to sovereignly answer or not. And how He wants to answer and when He wants to answer is His, his prerogative. Okay? Um, I just think part of what it means to be a prophet, uh, biblically, it includes a more natural discernment and ability to recognize and perceive the voice of God. It's just this more natural thing. It's easier 
to discern. It's easier to recognize. So now we get to the big question. Does, now that the new, the Bible is completed, the Protestant Bible in its entirety, the New Testament is finished. Does the completion of the New Testament guarantee or necessitate that prophets and prophecy are no longer needed in the church? That's the question we're answering now. <clears throat> are prophets done? Is prophecy done and no longer needed because the New Testament canon is finished? Okay. I'm going to unload a lot of information for you. So I really recommend you break out a notepad or you use your friend's back and just break out a Sharpie and jot down everything you can. Okay. Because what I'm about to share for it, I'm going to preface this for my cessationist brothers and sisters. For those that believe the gifts have ceased and you've had no experience and you only know the abuse of gifts and counterfeit versions and you only know hyper charismatic Christianity where it's all over the place and it's chaos and this is clearly not of God. I'm asking you to objectively, as best as you can, pull away from your bias, pull away from your preconceived notions, Pull away from what you think has been true most of your life. Try your best not to allow your own presuppositions and view to influence what I'm saying and how you're listening. Pull away from it and objectively listen to what I'm saying. And really weigh these things biblically, logically, be reasonable. Don't, don't allow MacArthur or Lawson or, or, or R.C. Sproul to whisper in your ear, pull away from that and just listen to the scripture objectively, okay? I'm gonna start by saying this. When prophecy was active, if indeed it has ceased, when prophecy was active throughout human history and prophets were active, scripture was still sufficient. The entire new canon of scripture was not complete, but the, we still believe that scripture was sufficient. And we're going to define what sufficiency of scripture means. Because I think also, based on your view of the sufficiency of scripture, you will come to a conclusion about prophecy based on what you think sufficiency of scripture means. So, I will say this. The operation of prophecy doesn't make scripture insufficient because some will say, hey, the New Testament canon is here. Therefore, any word we get prophetically is unnecessarily redundant because all it's going to do is say what the scripture already says or it's wrong because it's going to go against scripture. Those are your two options. I think that's a false dichotomy. I think we have a third option that we don't ever consider. And I'll get to that in a minute. But I will say this. If the gifts have ceased, the supernatural sign, wonders, tongues, healings, prof prophecy, if those gifts have ceased, okay, scripture should be sufficient to clearly tell us that prophecy and prophets are no longer needed now that the New Testament canon is finished. It should be explicitly clear. It shouldn't be this, this mysterious game where we're piecing things together and forming a picture that scripture doesn't out of our own bias. So the question becomes, what does it mean that scripture is sufficient? There's a doctrine called the sufficiency of scripture. What do you believe 
that scripture is sufficient to do? Well, I'll tell you what the scriptures are not sufficient to do. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible as a whole is not sufficient to give me directions on how to make pizza. The scripture is not sufficient to tell me how to get to the nearest Chuck E. Cheese. Not because I'm a creep, but because I have kids, you weirdos. The scripture is, is not sufficient to tell me which medication to take when I have strep throat. Scripture is insufficient to answer people the way the Spirit of God answers in the New Testament through prophetic words. People like Simeon, where Simeon was, it was revealed to Simeon, hey, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. Or Anna, same, same kind of prophetic word. Or Agabus, hey, there's going to be a famine. Guess what? If you remove their prophetic words and you just have the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't give us the information that the Spirit of God gave those prophets and people. So in that sense, the words that other prophets received from God about personal or regional or congregational direction, those words from God included information that you wouldn't find in the completed canon of Scripture. So when we say that Scripture is sufficient, usually people mean 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm not trying to minimize the beauty of Scripture. I'm helping you think reasonably. When you say Scripture is sufficient to do what? To accomplish what? What is it good enough to do? Can't tell me how to make a pizza or how to get to Chuck E. Cheese. Or all these are dumb examples. I get that. But when you think about it, you go, yeah. So what else have I assumed Scripture should be sufficient to do that it never says it is? I'm not going to shut off Google Maps and throw my map away and just look at the Bible and say, tell me how to get to, um, uh, I don't know, this new church I'm going to. Lamentations, a lot of weeping and mourning, but not a lot of directions. So there's a lot that the scripture is not sufficient to do. You can't be so mindless and rigid about this. Think for yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. Listen to what scripture is sufficient to do. Okay? All scripture is breathed out by God. That's what makes it sufficient to do what Paul is about to say it's capable of doing. Profitable for teaching. Profitable for reproof, correction, admonishment, <clears throat> more correction. How about training specifically in righteousness? So this is not a vague sense of teaching. This is not a vague sense of correction. It's training and teaching and correcting with a standard. And the scripture is the standard. The scripture presents us a Messiah and an actual perfect resurrected Savior that we're trying to be like. So there's a standard for righteousness. There's a standard to correct people by. There's a standard to actually expose mistakes and failures in my own life. There's a standard to actually use to teach and train people up. That the man of God may be complete. Now I've heard some pretty silly arguments where people read this and they go, well, you know, in the Old Testament, prophets are called men of God. So here, Paul is actually removing prophets and just saying man of God in a general sense now because prophets aren't needed anymore. If that's not the most reading into the text I've ever heard, I don't know what is. The point is, 
We're training to be complete in Christ. And the scripture is sufficient to do that. Guess what Jesus says in John 17? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So guess what the word of God is sufficient to do? It's sufficient to accomplish a spiritual work in the people of God. Scripture is sufficient to sanctify you and mature you and grow you and progress you into the image of Jesus. And Scripture is sufficient to equip you for every good work God has called you to. You've been designed in Christ as a new creation for new good works that God prepared before the foundation of the world. How do I prepare for that? How do I get equipped to do those? Scripture is what equips us and completes us and sanctifies us into the image of Jesus, not just by growing and sanctifying us and going to work in our hearts, but also by showing us the standard of the Son so we know who to go after. So let me tell you what Scripture is sufficient to do. Scripture is sufficient to teach you about Christ, to teach you about the ways of God, to teach you what it looks like to live godly, to reprove and correct you when you're not to train you up in righteousness and sanctification, to complete you and to equip you for the good works God has called you to do. Where does it say that sufficiency of scripture means no more prophecy, no more more prophetic role, no more spirit of God speaking, no more angelic visitations? Where does it say that? Let me tell you, scripture is sufficient to accomplish a spiritual work in the people of God. And that has physical, practical dimensions to it, but specifically, it's spiritual in nature. So the word of God is spiritual truth, watch this, that accomplishes spiritual goals and does spiritual things through the people of God in the world. And so some would say the New Testament version, okay, some would say that the New Testament version of prophecy, or rather, now that the canon of scripture is completed, prophecy has morphed into teaching. And they say, teaching is now prophecy. Well, I don't think teaching is the only form of prophecy, but I'm I'm perfectly okay with saying teaching falls under the category of prophesying, because you're declaring the word of God on behalf of God, the truth is sourced in God, and you're speaking by the Spirit of God. So absolutely, I'm not going to deny that that is a form of prophesying. But when you say that teaching, the Word of God, has now replaced any form of prophet's prophecy, I think you're sorely mistaken. In Scripture, both the Old and New Testament, watch, teaching and prophesying have always been distinct. Teachers and prophets are separate roles. So this doesn't mean they never cross over each other and they never overlap. But the teaching role was actually in the New Testament given mainly to the priests. While the prophets were to prophesy and instruct in that manner. So prophecy was about uncovering mysteries in the Old Testament. Revealing what wasn't known or understood. Teaching was about sharing what is already known as general revelation. So God has revealed himself in the law and and, and in the Torah for the people of Israel. Now the priests are to go and share what is now known with the people of Israel. 
Prophecy, though, is uncovering what is not known or not fully seen or understood. So Acts chapter 15 will give you, even in the New Testament, post-resurrection, post-ascension, there's a difference between prophets and teachers and preachers. That doesn't mean they never overlap. Okay? But these are distinct roles. Acts chapter 15, it says, Judas and Silas, who were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Both include words. After they spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Acts 15 is making a distinction whether you see it or not, and I think it's there, but this isn't like the crux of my argument. This is just one of the examples where you got Judas and Silas prophesying, encouraging, strengthening, and then it shifts to Paul and Barnabas in Antioch <clears throat> teaching and preaching. Okay? Second Chronicles chapter 15. Let's jump Old Testament. Second Chronicles 15, it says, For a long time Israel was without the true God without a teaching priest and without the law, right? So we're, we're, recalling, we're recalling what Israel did not have. Specifically, the priests were involved in the teaching of the law, right? For the people of Israel to know the living God. The problem is they rebelled and didn't want to actually know him, okay? Um, Ephesians 2 verse 20 We'll explain a little bit more, and we're going somewhere, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What is? Well, <clears throat> you are no longer strangers and aliens. Your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. This is family language built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the prophetic role, office, part of its purpose, okay? Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, part of the purpose for the prophetic role in the Old, and well, specifically when it comes to the church in the New Testament, is that this role is alongside apostles to lay the foundation of the church. The question then becomes, if it's foundational, does it no longer have its use now that the church is formed. My question is, wh when did the church ever reach completion? At what point did the global church reach maturity and perfection and complete you know, uh, representation of Jesus? At what point did we make it? Where in human history did the church perfectly arrive at a representation of Jesus that's perfect? When did we reach perfect maturity? Because some will say, well, the apostles and prophets, you know, foundational, right? So now that we have the church, well, they had the church there. It's in its infancy, and it still it needs apostles and prophets as a foundational thing. That doesn't mean that now we're out of our infancy stage. We no longer need prophets. There's a lot of reading into the text there. And I'll show you why, because I'm going to make my way through Ephesians, okay? Ephesians 2.20, and then we'll get to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 
And then Ephesians 3, it says, uh, The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Regardless of what role, regardless of what you're calling a prophetic word, the Spirit of God is the one who reveals that prophetic word and insight and understanding. There's a direct encounter that either a prophet or an apostle will have with the living God. So the mystery of the gospel, he's not talking about prophets in the Old Testament. He's saying now in this day and age when Paul is writing this, now the gospel in its entirety, Jew and Gentile, one family in Christ, new humanity, that's been revealed to apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You can't say that the fullness of that mystery was revealed to prophets in the Old Testament. He's talking about New Testament prophets. Okay? Like Joshua says, <clears throat> at what point does a house no longer need its foundation? Because when we say apostles and prophets are foundational, so you just rip the foundation out now that the house is built? Well, we're, no, we're talking about the work they've done, so you just remove their role entirely? That's not a logical conclusion to come to for me. Now you go to Ephesians 4, and this is where the crux of my argument is going to be. Okay? Apostles and teachers are different. Look, it's very clearly spelled out here in Ephesians 4. Very clearly. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I'm going to pop my ears or I'm going to go insane. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now watch. This all falls under the, what we're about to look at. The overall context and main point is live a life worthy of the calling as one new humanity in Christ, united. That's why he's about to spell out all the stuff we have in common, okay? Watch, there's one body, we're a part of one body. There's one spirit, We've, we were spiritually made alive by one spirit and we're filled with one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, there's one Messiah, one Savior, one faith, one belief system in him, one baptism, the spiritual baptism, one God and one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So as we move into the argument of what prophets, apostles, teachers, and shepherds are doing, it's all to promote this oneness in the body so we collectively live a life worthy of the gospel. This is not just about individualized Christianity. This is not just about, I'm going to live holy unto God myself without anyone go live holy personally but be connected to the rest of the body in unity okay so grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift now he's about to quote a psalm right here psalm six, psalm 68 therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives he gave gifts to men Remember the grace that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift? Well, he's talking about how Jesus attained these gifts. It's through the resurrection. 
as the perfect resurrected human, he gained for us, not because he lacked it, but because we lacked it, okay? He gained um, the authority, the power, the um, freedom from sin, death, and the devil. He gained that for us. And part of that are what he's going to call these gifts that he distributes to men. This is a triumphal, victorious psalm. It's about the victory of the God of Israel. And now it's actually said of Jesus. He's the one conquering, leading a host of captives. These are spiritual forces that he's now held captive. And we're now free from the bondage they once held us in. He's holding them captive and he's given gifts to his people. He's going full over it. You get a gift, you get a gift, you get a gift. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now watch. This is talking about not just the incarnation where he comes into our world, but he goes even lower into the grave and he breaks out and ascends even higher for us as the per perfect resurrected human. He's our mediator and our representative. So now watch. Remember the gifts that he gives? Remember the gifts that are the result of his victory? Remember the embodiment of grace? Watch. The gifts Paul has in mind to promote the unity of the church and to help us collectively live a life that is worthy of the gospel are the apostles. Apostles. Prophets evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. This is commonly referred to as the five-fold ministry. Now look why Jesus gives these roles to the church as a gift. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now hold on. If you go back to 2 Timothy, it said the word of God is sufficient to do these things. Right? Did it not say that the word of God is sufficient? Right here. All scriptures breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction. Training in righteousness. Equipping us for every good work. So why would Jesus redundantly, or why would God unnecessarily give apostles, preachers, or apostles, what was it? Apostles, shepherds, prophets, um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Why would he give those roles if they're just doing what the word of God already does? What, what's the point of those roles? Isn't that unnecessary? We have the completion of the scriptures. We have the completed canon of scripture. So we don't need shepherds. We don't need teachers. Like I can grow myself. I have the completed canon of scripture. It's sufficient. Guess what? The existence of shepherds and teachers doesn't minimize the sufficiency of scripture. That's part of it. The way God distributes his word, the way he sanctifies people in his word, the way he grows people up into the image of Jesus does not just include the word of God that does it. It includes shepherds and teachers and evangelists that wield that word and train people up in that word by teaching it accurately. So... The argument goes like this. If shepherds and teachers don't minimize the sufficiency of scripture, 
why do prophets and apostles? Because some will look at this list and go, well, apostles and prophets are no longer needed. Where is that? Well, 1 Corinthians 13. We'll get there in a second. But let me show you something. Okay. If I haven't made any points yet, I'm about to. <laughs> I really am. Okay. Look at why Jesus gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Look. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Okay. So that's the what. That's the what. It says, until we all attain. So here's the time marker. Okay. Here's the time marker. Here's when or how long we need shepherds, evangelists, teachers, prophets, and apostles, and we can't separate any from this list. What's true of one is gonna be true of all based on the context, okay? There's no reason to make some unbiblical separation. What's true of one is gonna be true of all. So if one is gonna last for all of human, for the remainder of human history, then they all will last. By the way, apostle here, think more of like a missionary Someone who goes and establishes churches. This is not capital A apostles. These are different. These are people who are commissioned out to go and plant churches, set up elder boards, raise people up, get them structured. They're, they're very different. They're more like missionaries, okay? So I don't believe that we. this is a capital A apostle. Those have indeed ceased, right? The 12 or 13 who actually saw Jesus visibly after the resurrection, that yeah, they have ceased for sure. But that doesn't mean with them comes the removal of prophecy or the removal of tongues or the removal of um, healings because these gifts were not just confirming in nature. They did lend credence to the gospel. That wasn't their only role. If that was their only role, then yes, there might be an argument and a case for maybe they're not needed, but that's not their only role. Apostles and prophets here, this is not about evangelism or confirming the gospel, okay? Right here, it's about building up the body, and it's about equipping the saints for ministry. And ministry happens uh, towards each other, not just out to the unbelievers, okay? We think ministry, and we're like, <clears throat> evangelism is <clears throat> not the only form of ministry. This is specifically about building each other up, okay? <clears throat> so here's the timeline for building up the body until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we'd be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is talking about perfect, absolute maturity. The stature of the fullness of Christ that's not talking about any position I reach or achieve prior to perfection. That is perfection. That's talking about collective, perfect sanctification, perfect maturity, perfect manhood, actually reaching the stature of Christ. That happens with the glorified bodies. That doesn't happen this side of heaven. Because as long as sin persists, as long as we live in a broken world tainted by corruption and sin, perfect fullness maturity, that's not possible, especially in these bodies. 
That's why God gives us glorified bodies. So the, the timetable attached to the need for apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers is we need those five roles until we all, as the global timeless church, reach perfect maturity in Christ. Let me ask you something. Has that happened? And if so, when? Because I want to be a part of that. And if I missed it, I want to get back on the train and make sure I, I, I'm a part of it. But if it has not happened, if perfect maturity is the standard and the goal, right? If fullness of Jesus is the absolute goal, and that's the reason we need prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, you know, apostles. If that's the reason, then we need those five roles, biblically, per Ephesians 4, until we reach the fullness of Christ. And that's why this passage so perfectly mirrors and parallels with 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 will talk about the perfect that is to come instead of the partial. And people will run to that and say, ah, yes, the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture. It doesn't say that. It says the perfect. It says the perfect. It's referring to perfect vision, perfect understanding, perfect maturity. That's, the, that's literally the timetable Paul gives. He says he, God gives these roles in the church to build us up until we attain. So once we attain perfect maturity and fullness of Christ, the stature of Jesus, perfect sanctification, once we reach that, guess what? We don't need these roles. But until then, we need these roles. And you can't say, well, only three of them, not apostles and prophets. Paul doesn't make that delineation. You did. That's a man-made delineation. So guess what? <clears throat> Here's another scripture that confirms the fact that prophets and teachers are different roles and different gifts. Doesn't mean they don't overlap. Doesn't mean they never cross over. But look, for those of you that are going to say, well, you know, prophecy has changed modes. Now that the completion of the canon is here, prophecy is just teaching. Nope, can't do that. Got teachers, got prophets right there. Can't do that. Can't morph them into one super role. They're different. So that argument falls apart. That doesn't mean teaching is not prophetic in nature. It means prophets and prophecy is going to be distinct from teaching. Teaching is a part, of a, a way to prophesy, but it's not prophecy in its entirety. It's one of the ways. <clears throat> so let me read you a quote, because uh, during my research, I was researching like, what do cessationists believe about the gifts and why? What's their biblical support and evidence? Okay. And 1 Corinthians 13 is, is what they usually go to. It's not a good argument in my opinion, <clears throat> but it all falls apart with Ephesians 4. I think that's like a one and done silver bullet for me. Like it's really, there should be no debate after this, but we can keep going. Here's a quote that I've got. We're all familiar with gotquestions.org. Usually the first resource that pops up when you Google a Bible question, was Jesus the Messiah? Is prophecy still for today? So I, I Googled that and I said, is prophecy still for today? Got questions, article pulled, got pulled up. So I, I'm reading it. Here's a quote from the article that I want to kind of break down. Now, I'm not attacking them in any way. I'm just thinking through this biblically. I love their work. I love what they do. I love their ministry. But I think right here, 
there's some issues with what they said, and I just want to address it, okay? <clears throat> Here's a quote from, I don't remember what the article's name, you can probably, you'll find it if you just search, is prophecy for today, gotquestions.org. They say, the author says, also note the transition from prophet to teacher in 2 Peter 2.1. There were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Parentheses, emphasis added. Peter indicates that the, and I'm reading a quote, okay? This is not my personal belief. I'm reading a quote. They are cessationists. They believe the gifts, at least prophecy, uh, based on the article I read, they believe it has, has ceased in its original capacity or it's morphed into teaching, okay? So they go on. Peter indicates the Old Testament age had prophets, Whereas the church will have teachers. Pause. I believe that's reading a lot into the text. But he'll go on. Quote, The spiritual gift of prophecy, in the sense of receiving new revelations from God to be proclaimed to others, that ceased with the completion of the Bible. During the time that prophecy was a revelatory gift, it was to be used for the edification, the exhortation, and the comfort of men. Quote, 1 Corinthians 14.3. The modern gift of prophecy, which is really more akin to teaching, I've already debunked that, still declares the truth of God. What has changed is that the truth of God today has already been fully revealed in his word. While in the early church, it had not been fully revealed. Okay, so this author's argument, the one who wrote the article, he's essentially saying we don't need prophecy because prophecy was needed when scripture was not yet fully compiled and we didn't have a full revelation of God's word. And I'll get to that in a minute. Let me talk about what he says in 2 Peter 2, 1, because that can sound like a reasonable argument. The issue I have is that Peter's whole point in, in this context is he's warning against false teachers, okay? And the way he warns against false teachers is by referencing the fact there used to be false prophets in the Old Testament who also taught the people wrong. And we see this in Jeremiah. He explicitly will talk about how false prophets prophesy, one, and then they teach the people to do wrong, two. So he even, Jeremiah even delineates between prophecy and teaching. But 2 Peter 2, 1, the context is warning against false teachers, protecting against false teachers, okay? He says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will bring in secretly destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And he'll go on to talk about what a false teacher will be like in the New Testament. Stop. Peter is the context. He's addressing false teachers by referencing false prophets. By referencing false prophets, to address the issue of false teachers, is he saying that false that, that teachers and the teaching role has replaced prophets and the role of prophet? Is he saying that? And I would say that's completely off the grid of what he's doing. That's reading a lot into the text by saying, look at how Peter is 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 letting us know that from the old to the new, there's a transition between prophets to teachers. He's not saying that. He's just specifically addressing teachers by referencing false prophets. He's not saying teachers have replaced prophets. That's an argument from silence. He's not saying anything. 
about that at all. I think that's reading a lot into the text. So that's silly, uh, in my opinion. Like, that's not a replace. Teachers don't replace prophets. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, um, I think has confirmed that. This Acts 15, 2 Corinthians 15. There's always been a delineation between teaching and prophecy. Peter's not creating some new uh, category that didn't exist prior. And so well, now prophets have morphed into teachers. He's not saying that. He's addressing false teachers because that's an issue in the new ch- in the in the new co- in the in the early church. He's not saying anything about f- false uh, or about the issue of prophets and prophecy. So we we can't add to what Peter's saying. The whole main point is watch out for false teachers. The pe- the point of what Peter's doing is not hey by the way there's no more t- prophets anymore. It's reading a lot into the text. And I've already shown you that modern prophecy, when he says, quote, the modern gift of prophecy, which is really more akin to teaching, that's not true. Teaching is a mode and a way to prophesy, but teaching is not prophecy in its entirety. It's not. They're distinct. They're different, but they still overlap. And teaching is a way to declare the word of the Lord the same way a prophet does when he receives a prophecy. Or when he gives a prophecy, he's declaring the word of God, just like a teacher does, but teaching doesn't replace prophecy. <clears throat> so the argument goes like this for whoever wrote this article. And I'm not attacking him. I'm clarifying what I think is the issue at, at, at the core. Okay. Um, let me say it like this. The argument goes like this for whoever wrote this article. Okay. The need for prophets in the New Testament is due to the incomplete revelation of the scriptures, okay? The New Testament is completed. But prior to that, there was partial revelation or an incomplete biblical canon. And so because there was only partial revelation, right? That's the reason why prophets were needed. That's the reason why prophecy was active. The problem with that argument is this. Prophets in the New Testament weren't even addressing things that scripture speaks directly to. And I've already shown you this with um, Simeon in Luke chapter 2. Remember? Luke chapter 2, it was revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. Scripture is insufficient to tell Simeon that, which is exactly, like even with a completed canon, scripture in its entirety, if, if, if Simeon never received that word from the Holy Spirit, Scripture as a whole doesn't give us that information and wouldn't tell Simeon that data. So, in that sense, Scripture is insufficient to tell Simeon that he won't die before he sees the Messiah. That's why he receives the word from the Spirit. Same with Matthew chapter 23. Uh, Jesus talks about how he will send prophets and wise men and scribes. Uh, Um... Uh, Agabus's prophecy in Acts chapter 11, when he talks about the famine that's going to overtake the world, guess what? Not, I'm not minimizing the beauty and the, and, and the sufficiency of Scripture for what it's intended to do. But technically, Scripture is insufficient to tell the d- apostles that there would be a famine in their time. So guess what? Agabus stands up, receives a word from the Spirit, and shares that information that even a New Testament, even a completed canon of Scripture wouldn't be sufficient to tell them. So when we say, um, when we say that, you know, 
the reason prophets were needed was because we only had a partial revelation or an incomplete canon, that's not a logical conclusion to come to. Because what God told people through, the, through prophetic words and by the Spirit didn't even touch what Scripture touches. Agabus getting a word about the famine or in Acts chapter 21, when Agabus comes back like he does out of the bushes and he just goes, what's up, Paul? By the way, uh, whoever owns this belt, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. He's prophesying of Paul's impending persecution. Guess what? Scripture is insufficient to tell us that apart from, to, to tell Paul that apart from Agabus by the Spirit telling him that that's going to happen. But Paul also had confirmation from other prophets and his, in, his inward confirmation. So I'm just trying to show you that we can't say, well, you know, God only had prophets because the New Testament wasn't completed. Even with a complete New Testament, it doesn't give us the information that these prophetic words gave to Agabus or Paul or Simeon or the Antioch prophets in Acts 13. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, set apart Barnabas and, and, and Saul for the work I have. Guess what? Scripture is insufficient to tell us that information apart from that. They wouldn't have known. So the Antioch prophets, they don't go, hey, hold on. Hold on. Let's not act on a prophetic word. Let's wait for the completed canon of Scripture, and then we'll know what we need to do. Even with the complete canon, even with the New Testament being closed and sealed, it's insufficient to give the data that the Spirit gives to these people personally. Whether it's the Antioch prophets or Agabus or Paul or whether it's <clears throat> uh, Simeon. I mean, you can even go down to Paul saying the Spirit of God testifies to me. Or 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 talks about how Timothy um, is called not to ne neglect the gift he has. It was given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on, on Timothy. So, so one of the ways God gives gifts and the methodology behind gift distribution included prophecy. That was a way to distribute a gift to Timothy was through the prophetic laying on of hands by the elders. And I don't think we should take a, make that a, a pattern and go, that's the way God does things. This is a unique scenario. But the point is, prophecy was involved in Timothy receiving a gift, okay? So even with a completed canon, if Timothy never received that prophetic word or prophetic experience from the elders, scripture would be insufficient to give him that gift. First Timothy 1.18, there were prophecies made about Timothy that we don't even have recorded in scripture. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Guess what? We don't have those prophecies written down in the New Testament. So guess what? The New Testament, even in its completed form, is insufficient to tell us what Timothy needed to know to move forward and be strong. So that, that argument falls apart. The reason God gave prophets and prophecy was not because the New Testament canon was not complete. That's not the bulk of the reason. That's not 
God's like, you know what? New Testament's not finished, so I got to give prophets. And the scripture was still sufficient. The scripture they had in the Old Testament and even in the New, the scripture they had access to was still sufficient to do the work God wanted to do. Scripture doesn't become more sufficient when it's more complete. What they had was what they needed. What they had was what God knew they had, uh, they needed to move forward. So even with the incomplete canon of scripture, God is able to move his plan forward and tell people what they need to know. And guess what? Scripture doesn't speak to most of what the New Testament prophecies address. I mean, I can go down the line. Ananias receives a vision to go see Paul. Cornelius receives a vision to go find Peter. Peter receives a vision to go find Cornelius. Paul receives visions that he's going to be sustained on the boat. John receives a vision in Revelation. All these prophetic words, prophetic visions are given to people, right? And they're given data and information that scripture does not give us because it's insufficient to give us that. So guess what God does? He speaks by his spirit. He speaks by visions. These are personal words, practical direction. You know, when um, Paul's trying to figure out, do I go, you know, to Jerusalem or do I stay? I don't know. I don't want to. He doesn't go, well, hold on. My answer will be in the Bible. There's general wisdom. There's general principles to guide our decisions. But ultimately, the Bible's not going to tell me explicitly, hey, go there or don't go there or hey, move there and get a job. There's wisdom I can glean. But ultimately, the decision is going to be made through prayer and fasting and consulting wise people. So guess what? That argument breaks into pieces that, you know, we don't need the prophets or prophecy anymore because the New Testament's complete. It's that, those are two different issues, two different issues. Okay. Very, very, I don't know how else to explain it. And I'm trying to be as loving as I can. And man, I was hoping to get to the sons of the prophets and, but I have a meeting. I'm really trying to not be too late to, um, with my mighty men because I love them. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stop shorter than I planned to, and then tomorrow we'll talk about can the gift of prophecy be taught or developed, because that's also a question that comes up. Okay, so guess what? Let me take you to First Corinthians 13. Usually, a cessationist. Someone who does not believe in the gifts, prophecy, tongues, like they have ceased um, and they're no longer in operation, they'll go to 1 Corinthians 13. The reason I brought up Ephesians 4 first was because I think this parallels so perfectly with 1 Corinthians 13. And I wanted to prime you and get you ready to understand what's about to be said. Okay? And I'm not biased. I, I, I couldn't care less either way. Either way, like whether the gifts are for today or not, I don't care. I literally don't care. So I'm not telling you my opinion and my bias because I'm so strictly held to that. I'm doing it because scripture seems to speak very clearly to what I'm saying. And if we can be as truthful as possible, then guess what? We'll live the most fulfilling lives possible. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13, let me just read it. I'll tell you what the typical cessationist will say about this. Love never ends, okay? The overall context for 1 Corinthians 13 is what? Love is ultimate, better than any gift, 
better than any spiritual skill, better than any knowledge you have and anything you can do. Love is ultimate because God is love. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And guess what? He hasn't told us when they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Yet he has not told us when. We know in part, so this is not just about prophecy, this is about knowledge as well. So what is true of prophecy here and prophesying has to also be true of biblical knowledge, which includes teaching. So when the perfect comes, now we got a time marker. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The partial will pass away. So here we have two ideas being contrasted. We have the partial, partial what? We'll talk about that in a minute. And we have the perfect, the perfect what? Talk about that in a minute. When I spoke as a child, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Okay. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. This plays into what it means for, to have partial. The partial so far seems to indicate maturity. Just like Ephesians 4, that the, the five-fold ministry is given to equip and train so that we're not little kids running around all immature and not even knowing our father. We can grow up and be mature. Same argument happening in 1 Corinthians 13. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Okay, so what he's talking about is physical stature, physical maturity that he's going to relate to spiritual maturity. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. That's the partial, right? Becoming a man here is talking about maturity. But then I'll see face to face. Now I know in part, that's the partial. Then I shall know fully as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. The greatest of these is love. Guess what will happen when I stand before Jesus? I will no longer have need for faith. I won't need to believe in the unseen. I'll no longer need to hope because I'm not waiting for anything else. I have arrived. When I stand before the living God and I'm given a glorified body in the resurrection, in the new creation, that's it. I'm not waiting for anything else. I'm not hoping for a better reality. It's here. That's why I say in the new world, hope doesn't exist anymore because we're not waiting for anything better. There's no hope in heaven, you might say, right? And there's no faith anymore because I'll be seeing what I've been waiting to see. So you know what's going to last in the kingdom though? It's this, love. That's the whole point of his argument. He's dealing with a church that has chosen gifts over love. They've prioritized spirituality and being supernatural above loving the church. And he's addressing that by saying, look, and here's the typical cessationist argument. Let me, let me give you the typical cessationist argument. Well, right here he's talking about the perfect 
that's going to be the completion of the canon of scripture. Where does it say that? Well, right here. We'll see face to face. And James talks about reading the word of God. It's like a mirror. We're seeing what we need to fix. Okay. James still admits that the word of God in its completed form is still a mirror. Did he not? Well, yeah, he's using it to, to make the, the point that it shows us what we need to change. Sure, James is still saying the canon of scripture, and of course it's not completed when James is writing his letter, obviously, but the point is he's still saying it's a mirror. Let me show you what the whole point of this passage is. Love outlasts even faith, even hope, even every gift that we have. Because guess what? In the new creation, when I see Jesus face to face, I will not have partial knowledge. Right now, we only know in part. How many of you know God perfectly? How many of you know one thing about God perfectly? The answer is none of you. I don't. None of us know anything perfectly about God. He can't be perfectly fully known this side of heaven. He's incomprehensible. When we stand before him, guess what Paul says? And you're, well, you're reading into the text, brother. It doesn't say about standing before the living God. Okay, let's break this down word for word. Love never ends. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge also will pass away. So if you're saying prophecy and tongues are gone, <coughs> you also have to throw out knowledge itself. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So guess what the perfect is? It's contrasted with partial knowledge. It's contrasted with partial prophecy, which means the perfect has to be perfect knowledge. Yeah, good job. And what pro prophecy brings up, the, the mysteries of God and the revelation of the world and his plan of redemption, the perfect will be Perfect revelation. Yeah, good job, guys. You're on it. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. So now he's bringing in the issue of physical stature and maturity. I became a man. I gave up childish ways. For, or therefore, now, the analogy he just gave of physical maturity and stature relates to what he's about to say. Now we see in a mirror dimly. We're looking in a mirror dimly. What does that mean? We prophesy in part. We know in part. We see God partially. We don't see him perfectly. We don't know him perfectly. We don't prophesy in this perfect state where I have every detail and I have all mysteries known. That's why he'll say, if I know all mysteries, he's talking about prophecy at the, at the start of uh, chapter 13, right here. If I speak in tongues, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, so prophecy is understanding mysteries, right? So the partial is partial understanding of mystery, partial knowledge, partial vision. The perfect contrasted with the partial is perfect knowledge, perfect vision, perfect understanding of the mysteries of God. Face to face, we will see. What's he referring to? Who do I know partially right now? God. Who do I see partially right now? God. What 
Who do I understand partially and prophetically right now? God. But when I see him face to face and I stand before him in a glorified body at the resurrection and I see the God of gods, the one who reigns in heaven, who has all power and authority, when I see him, guess what? I will not partially know him. I will not partially see him or understand him. Paul says, now I know in part, then I'll know fully. And just in case you're tempted to think, well, the knowing fully and the seeing face to face is about just being mature, brother. It's not just about being mature. It's about absolute perfect maturity, perfect sanctification, perfect conformity to Christ. How do I know that? Because the standard that we are knowing is that as we are fully known. Do you catch that? So the degree to which I am known by God perfectly is the degree to which I will know him. That's the time frame on how long we need prophecy and knowledge and tongues and any other gift God has given. It's until perfect maturity and stature and vision of God. Does that not confirm what Ephesians 4 said? That we need these roles and these gifts until perfect maturity, perfect conformity, perfect vision. That doesn't happen this side of heaven. That doesn't happen at any point in human history as long as we live in a fallen world. So guess what? We need those gifts and we need those roles. They might vary in degrees. Right? They might function in different capacities throughout different seasons of human history. They're still in operation because of the fact they're given to build us up in Christ in the direction of perfection. So until then, we need it. So if the church is not perfect, if you're not perfect, if you don't see God perfectly and know Him perfectly, guess what is still needed and still active? Prophecy. Now we can talk about the varying degrees to which it's active and, and the varying degrees to which it's even needed. I think that even fluctuates with the seasons of human history. <clears throat> but let me end with this. One of the common pushbacks we get from cessationist brothers and sisters is that, well, if prophecy and prophets are still active, then we have an open canon of Scripture. Where is that in the, in the scriptures? If scripture is sufficient, then scripture should be sufficient to tell us that prophecy has ceased. We don't need it anymore because the canon of scripture is complete, which by the way, the perfect here doesn't refer to the New Testament completion of, and the canon of scripture. But if it's sufficient, it should be sufficient to tell us prophecy has ceased and prophets are done. And it should also be sufficient to tell us that if prophecy is active, then the canon of scripture is open. Where is that? So the question becomes, is it true that if prophecy and prophets are still active, the canon of scripture is still open? I don't believe so. Many prophets didn't write down anything in the canon of scripture. Many people who received direct visions from God without a mediator outside of scripture, received direct vision or words from God, didn't have a hand in writing and composing the biblical narrative. Being a prophet doesn't necessitate 
you write down authoritative scripture and it doesn't mean you have permission to do so. Prophets don't just run the show. Capital A apostles in the New Testament that Jesus commissions, yeah, those capital A apostles provide clear guidelines for how the prophets should operate in the New Testament church. So prophets don't have authority over capital A apostles or church leaders for that matter. I don't think the order in Ephesians 4 is giving us a hierarchy. The completion of the New Testament canon means we don't need apostles. Capital A apostles visibly saw Jesus after the resurrection, commissioned by him personally, saw him at the baptism. We don't need them because the scripture is completed. That doesn't mean we don't need prophets because prophets and apostles laid the foundation. You have to figure out why you've logically concluded that prophets aren't needed because we have the completed canon of scripture. Scripture doesn't support that idea. It's not sufficient to tell us that or tell us that scripture, that prophecy is done. Okay. And then a follow-up question. I'll save this for tomorrow. Okay. This just turned into an eight-part series. <clears throat> if I can't fit in the concept of teaching or training prophecy tomorrow, not teaching and giving the gift, but training up the gift. If I can't fit that into tomorrow's message, this just turned into an eight-part series. For those of you that do not know, <clears throat> this is our online ministry um, that my wife and I moved from California to Florida to start. We're about a year in. Um, God has really blessed this. We have a ton of free resources. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. We want to move people towards Jesus. That's all we're doing. Every decision we make, it's how can we move people towards Christ? How can we exalt Him? How can we magnify Him and grow their faith in Him? So we have a bunch of free resources. No cost to you. Free Bible study courses online. Free devotional studies online. Free Bible study worksheets. Free Bible study workshops. We have a completely free online church you can join today. It's linked in the YouTube description below and on TikTok. Okay, you can get a copy of my book, Fruitful. You can check out our online church and join right here on the website or in the YouTube description below. If you want to donate to what God is doing here and help us create all this content for free to everyone around the planet, if you want to help more of these messages to get out, if you want to help us resource the church and reach the lost and make disciples, you can give right here on our donate page. You can give through debit or credit card one time. You can send a check right here to this address, uh, P.O. Box. You can give through PayPal. You can give through Cash App. You can give through Venmo. You can give right here on YouTube. <laughs> we have Super Chats. You can give through Patreon as a monthly supporter, whether it's $4 or $10, and you get a bunch of exclusive benefits. You can buy some church merch, and that supports this ministry and makes this possible um, because I do have a wife and two kids. This is my full-time job. And then um, I think that's everything. Get a copy of my book if you haven't. Join the online church if you have not. And, and just enjoy all the free content that we have. And tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll be back here ready to rock. And uh, we'll get to it, all right? I love you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. Visit AboveReproachMinistry.com if you have not already um, to get involved, whether it's praying or donating or being a part of the online church. We have about 3,000 people in our online church community. And I think you'd find someone to get along with and grow in your faith with. So I think that's it for today, guys. I'll see you guys tomorrow. And I love you all. Keep moving towards Jesus.